Well, good morning to everyone. It is always good to see you all, and uh, you might not realize it, but I know that uh, attendance at church and Sunday school is not, cannot be the sum total of our spirituality, but um, but you being here, showing your desire to study God's Word, showing your desire to see one another, and uh, you being faithful is uh, an encouragement to each other. And, uh, and so I know sometimes we, uh, we think that's not the case, but uh, just when, when all of us show up and we make the effort, it encourages every other person that's there as well. And uh, sometimes we don't even consciously think about it. So I, I'm encouraged by your presence. That's basically what I'm trying to say uh, by each one of you being here. And uh, I hope that uh, our study today is a blessing to you. So we're going to continue in our study on the uh, second coming of Christ. Specifically, we are going to study, uh, we're going to continue our, our look and hopefully finish, although that might be a long shot, but we're going to try to finish uh, the study on the hope of the Christian. Can someone give me, before we get into the passage we're going to look at, can someone give me the, um, the biblical definition of the word hope? What is hope? As we've studied in our, in our lessons here, can anybody give me an idea of what the word hope means, especially as it relates to faith? Biblically speaking, what is hope? Say again? It's faith, faith with, and Ms. Karen added something? Exactly. It's faith as it deals with future events that have not yet happened, whereas faith in its standard meaning deals with events that are presently true. And of course, uh, that's why we see the word hope used as referring to the Christian so often because uh, in reference to the coming of the Lord, because we know that the Lord has not come, uh, despite what some amillennialist might say, that we, we're living in the time of the coming of the Lord. And boy, that's disappointing if that's the case. Uh, but uh, we, are, we live in hope of the coming of the Lord. And so we're going to continue our study in that. As uh, specifically, we studied last week about the hope of the Christian. We looked at different passages relating to uh, hope in Acts chapter uh, 2 and 23 and 24 and 26, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We also spent some time in Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 8. Today we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can go ahead and turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But as it relates to hope, we looked at Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 8. Specifically, we saw how that, hey, Patrick's good to see Patrick here this morning, um, it's, uh, we saw how that the, uh, the hope of the Christian is often put, put in the context of trouble and tribulation. And we saw how that when we look at those verses, we see that trouble in this life is designed to give us hope. That is, is designed to build that hopeful uh, part of our faith 
And again, when we say, uh, I just want to make this clear because it seems like in religion these days, there is so much ambiguity. And there's, when people preach and teach, it's, or it's talking to Brother Mason about how that, you know, in some churches, the, you know, nothing is distinct anymore. There are no clear definitions. There are, everybody wants to kind of play both sides of every issue and, and that kind of thing. And there are times when that has to be done, when it is genuinely unclear. But then there are other times when it's just plain fear of man and people are afraid to be distinct. So let's be distinct. When we say hope, we're not talking about the humanistic kind of hope that is wishful, you know, hoping for the best, hoping for the, the, uh, the, a good outcome of something. No, when we talk about hope, we're talking about the coming of Christ. That is an expectation a faith in and a genuine expectation of the Lord's appearance and all that goes along with that. And as we saw in our text, trouble, Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 8, trouble uh, causes us to, to have patience and patience gives us, does anybody remember off the top of your head? Patience gives experience and then experience provides us with hope which is a reference to the coming of Christ, right? Our expectation of the coming of Christ. So to summarize, basically what that means is that, you know, the Lord wants us to be tired of this world, right? Of the sufferings of this world, but not just the sufferings of this world. Listen, I know all of us are tired of hearing, you know, we, we saw it today, this week, uh, today. We saw it this past week going into a hospital room that is the, the, the deathbed of a person. And we see that, and every time we see it, you know, I think of uh, when, when uh, Brother Lundy uh, passed away, and I heard about that. Uh, you know, you think of his wife and the, the sufferings that she's going through, and that's definitely something we all have to deal with. And every time we deal with it, it makes us tire of this present world, right? Of the circumstances in which we live. And when we tire of it, the Lord's desire is that our view would be turned to Him. Lord, would you please come? So in the context of suffering, that's what we think. And that's what the Scripture says is that's what the suffering is designed to do. But another thing is it is the suffering that we not the suffering, but there's another thing that is designed to cause us to tire of this world and long for and expect in hope the Lord's return, and that is our own sin, the sin that is in us. The Lord wants us to be tired of that, and that's what we talked about last week. The Lord wants us to be sick and tired of the sin that dwells in our mortal body. You say, what is that? Sin that dwells in our mortal body? Yes. You know how, did you know that philosophers through the, the millennia have been debating over why man does what he does? And some people thought, you know, some people think that, uh, that the body was pure and holy. And some people thought that the body was purely evil. And, you know, that's why they had different things like asceticism and different, um, different ideas like antinomianism, where there is no law, you just indulge. These are all ideas that go back to why we are the way we are. And the reason we are the way we are is because of the sin that dwells in our mortal body. It longs for evil. And that longing should 
make us sick and tired of it, right? Because we know when the Lord comes, that's what we're going to talk about today, when the Lord comes, uh, we will be changed. And that sinful body would be put off forever. And so uh, let's pray, and then I want to get into 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's pray together. Our Lord, thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Thank you for your love to us and for the good things that you promised us, Lord, because we certainly do tire of the evil uh, in its various forms, yea, even the evil that's in us, and having to deal with it constantly, fight it, and uh, resist it. And Lord, we do long to see you, because we know as we, when we see you, uh, that we will be like you. And thank you for these things that you've shown us in your word already, but Lord, we uh, we have hope now that you're going to show us even more. So, Lord, would you please lead and guide in uh, both the teaching, but also in the hearing and listening. In Jesus' name, amen. So, just in summary, before we get into 1 Corinthians 15, troubles in this life are designed by the Lord to cause us to long for that hope in Christ when we'll be free from this world. We should, not, we should not expect to remain comfortable in this world. And I say that, and I feel, even in my own heart, a tinge of regret, you know, in, in the fact that, you know, I and you will not be comfortable in this world. There's, there's sadly, more suffering in the future. And so we should say, Lord, would you come today, right? <laughs> and so we can escape that. The hope of Christ's return and our resurrection should cause us to groan in ourselves about the sinful body in which we live. The Christian who is right with God will feel dissatisfied and disappointed with that sinful flesh. You know, if you feel, if you feel content with your spiritual life and you don't, you don't feel that pull of sin and that, that war that rages inside of every believer... You know, with the spiritual man, the inner man versus this, the flesh. Uh, listen, that is a common that is a that is a, a common occurrence, a common uh, experience of all Christians. All right, so let's look at First Corinthians fifteen, and I'm not gonna. We're not gonna try to study the whole chapter. I will make a few comments, kind of on on an on an outline level. Verses 1 through 11, of course, you have uh, verse 1 says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. And just to skip down a little bit, verse number 3, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Of course, you have the definition of the gospel, right? The definition of the gospel clearly defined in Scripture. But down through verse 11, what you see in verse 5, it says, and that he was seen. Verse 6, he was seen of above 500. Verse 7, he was seen of James. Verse number 8, and last of all, he was seen of me. You know, the Apostle Paul in verses 1 through 11, he gives the gospel. He explains what the gospel is. And part of that gospel is the resurrection. Listen, you cannot disassemble scriptural truth, and take the parts you like, right? 
You cannot disassemble it and take only the elements that suit whatever theological framework or whatever. You can't do that. And the resurrection is no, no exception. This is one of the chief errors of people like Jehovah's Witnesses and other cults, is that they deny the reality of the resurrection of Christ. They deny it. You can't do that. Because, as you'll see in a minute, denial of elements, even small elements of the gospel, ripples out and affects many other biblical teachings that are built upon that reality. That's why it's so important for you and for me to have a firm understanding of the elements of the gospel. You think, well, I already know all that. Well, our familiarity with the gospel ought to be ought to be really profound and deep. Even though, it's a, even though it's a relatively simple and easy to understand concept and truth, uh, it should be something that we're intimately familiar with. You can, listen, you can connect almost every major teaching in the Bible to the gospel, right? You can do that. And it's affected by the gospel. But in verses 1 through 11, the, uh, uh, Paul puts special emphasis on the fact that Jesus was seen, right? He spends several verses talking about that. In other words, Paul is proving, he is giving evidence for the reality of the resurrection of Christ. Now, why is that important? Because his whole argument in the rest of chapter 15 is based upon the reality, the factual reality of the resurrection of Christ, right? That's why he's spending so much time on it. That's the, th- it's the theme of the whole chapter. And so verse number 12, he pivots. He says, Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? So that, that's what I'm, that's, you see what I'm telling you. You see what I'm trying to say, which is, the fact of the resurrection of Christ affects all the other doctrines that are related to that. So you can't, you, can't, you can't tinker with the truth that Christ is alive. He rose bodily from the grave. You can't tinker with that and it not affect everything else. It does affect everything else. It affects those that have died, where they are, whether, whether the, the Bible clearly teaches they're in, in uh, heaven with God, it, it affects the hope of the Christian. Look, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, he's not coming back. There's no hope. The Christian's hope is vanished. Not only that, you tinker with the resurrection of Christ, you tinker with your own salvation, right? Because if Christ did not rise from the dead, then you and I still are under sin, under its penalty. But Christ has risen. So that's why I want you to understand that that the elements of the gospel, you cannot separate them. You cannot deny one and leave the rest. You can't do that. You have to take it all. It all stands or falls together. And so in verse, uh, we drop down to verse number 17. That's what I was saying earlier. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. You're yet in your sins. Now, let me explain something to to you here kind of in passing. A lot of false doctrine when it deals with the resurrection of Christ, very few Christian groups uh, outright deny the resurrection and say, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Almost none of them. 
No cults, none of them do that. But what they do is they change the definition. You just need to be aware of that. Most of most uh, most cults and Christian, most mainline denominations don't deny it outright. But uh, especially when you're talking about cults or fringe groups, they don't deny the resurrection. They just say that Jesus' resurrection was spiritual in nature, right? In other words, he like for instance, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, they say that Jesus, Jesus rose in a, in, a, in a spiritual body, a spiritual body. But the problem with that idea is if Jesus rose in a spiritual body, what happened to his body? His physical body, right? Jesus' physical body rose. Otherwise, it is no resurrection from the dead, right? Because his physical body died. This is why you can't tinker with it. You, it's like you pull out one string and the whole garment comes unraveled. You can't do that. It all stands or falls together. Just in passing, we should understand that. Verse 18 says, Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. In other words, the resurrection is the hope of those that have died in faith. Right? That they will rise from the dead. Now, let me say something at this point. When you, look at, when you look at this chapter, this chapter is almost entirely about the resurrection of the body, right? The doctrine of the resurrection of the body. And, uh, and the hope of the Christian is, ha- has that resurrection in view. So sometimes we might, and I know I was thinking this as I was reading and studying on this, is, is the question, this question, well, what about when someone dies? For instance, Brother Lundy, Brother Lundy, his body died, right? His body. But his soul, we know, the Scripture says, that the soul, our soul, goes to be with God immediately, right? But that state is not the final state. That's just a temporary kind of, I don't know, fix. You understand? That's, that's, that's kind of a limbo. It's like that because the body is dead. But the human being in his creation, I don't want to get too, too deep in this, but... The human being is three parts, right? Body, soul, and spirit. And when the body dies and the soul departs, the the soul and the spirit depart to be with God, that is not the whole human being because the whole human being includes the body, right? That's why the resurrection of the body is so important. And that's why Jesus' resurrection is so important. You know, the Lord doesn't give out rewards until the resurrection of the body. So all, these, all this labor we do for Christ, we do it not just for the reward, but we do it to please the Lord, knowing that the Lord is looking upon us and He's going to reward us. But that doesn't happen unless there's a resurrection. Because all those things are at that, that day when He returns. And so let's drop down to verse number, uh, verses just as a, as a note. Verses 12 through 19 give us the effects if the resurrection of Christ is false. How that affects us personally, how it affects our faith, how it affects our future, how it affects those that have died in Christ. So you, again, you can't tinker with that. Verse number 19, let's read that again. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. So here's what we learn from that. I'm sorry, verse 19, I read verse 18. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. 
What does the Lord say? What does the Lord guarantee? I'll use that word about this life for the Christian. Somebody help me. What does the Lord guarantee about this life for a Christian? Does the Lord guarantee that this life will be prosperous? That we'll have plenty of money? Does he? Does he guarantee that we'll be free from health problems? No. What does he guarantee? That, you know, that's, that's an interesting paradox, isn't it? What does he guarantee? Say again. Well, even our life is a, a vapor. The Lord, listen to this. The Lord guarantees tribulation, persecution. We live in a body that's sinful, that's corrupting, that's decaying. So that means health problems, death. Ugh. If that's all, if this life is all there is for the Christian, do you see what he's saying? That's not much to look forward to. This is why people throw themselves at sin. This is why. They, sit, they have no hope of a future resurrection. They have no hope. They see only this life. And so you know what they do? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. We need to live it up now. How many times have you heard that? I've heard people say that. It's not often someone verbalizes that idea, but that's precisely what, what, what people in the world who have no hope think. That's why they throw themselves. Does anybody know what the term hedonism is? What's hedonism? Does anybody know that term? What's it mean? Of course, the lady of letters. Exactly. It's... It's just complete and total indulgence in pleasure. This is the way most people in the world live. Why? If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. That's their view. This, is, this life is all there is. That view must not, listen, it must not permeate the Christian's mind. It will do what? Verse number Verse 33, be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. That's actually in the same context. That view of the world cannot permeate, permeate our lives. We do not live for this life. We want a good life. We want happiness. We want success. We want to be free from illness. Every one of us has those natural desires. But that's not what we live for. We live for the hope to come. We live for that day when the Lord calls us out of the grave or calls us up to Him and He examines our lives and He dispenses rewards according to our faithfulness. We, in short, we live for the Lord's pleasure, for the Lord's approval, right? That we have been faithful to Him. That's what it's about. Now look at verse number 26. I'm, I'm jumping around here a little bit, but look at verse number 26. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. All right? Of course, this is talking about at the very end when death is cast in the lake of fire. But you think about the Christian. Think about yourself. Death cannot be destroyed as long as we're dead. The Christian dies. His body goes into the ground, right? 
His body is buried. And our soul is with God. But listen, yes, our soul is with God. We're no longer in pain. We're in the Lord's presence. All of that is true. But death has not yet been destroyed for us, right? Because we're still under its dominion because our body's dead. That's why, again, the resurrection is necessary. The resurrection, not... I'm talking about the resurrection of, of, of the believer, which is built upon the resurrection of Christ. So the Lord is going to give each and every one of us victory over death. That's the bottom line. Now verses 32 through 34 talk about the practical effect of not believing in our own resurrection. That's what I talked about a minute ago, which is living life for pleasure in the moment. In other words, Paul talks about specifically being fed to beasts, right? And that was a real thing in Roman times. That's one, one way they executed Christians is they would throw them into the Colosseum with wild animals so they would fight with wild animals and, of course, lose. And they would die in that manner. But he says, if there is no resurrection and this life is all there is, then why am I going to risk that? And he says, and why stand we in jeopardy every hour? Verse number 30. Why is... Paul saying, why am I in jeopardy of my life? Why am I in such, uh, you know, with the persecution? Why do I endure that if I have no hope? That the Lord, I'll, I'll, see, I'll see the Lord and I'll be raised from the dead and, and be rewarded for, this, uh, for my faithfulness. And then we go down to verse number 37. And he talks about, it's the description of the resurrection, kind of the mechanics of it. In other words, what we are now is not what will be raised again. In other words, the body in which we'll be raised, and this is where I think, I, I think it comes into a lot of practical things, all right? So we're, we're raised from the dead. Uh, to summarize it again, this is not my main point. When we're raised from the dead, we're raised in a body that is no is not corrupted and is not... Look, at, look down at verse number 43. Or verse 42, I'm sorry. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown, this is the body now, in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Okay. Listen to that description of your flesh and my flesh. We have to get this down. We have to understand this. There is no good thing in our flesh. And any time we're acting according to the dictates of our natural inclinations, I don't care if every living, breathing human being says it's the right way to act and the right response to have. If we're acting in, in accordance with those dictates, it will be evil 10 out of 10 times. Here's what the Lord says of this body. Corruption, verse 42. Dishonor, verse 43. Weakness, Verse 43, natural, 
verse 44. That's the Lord's description of our, the body in which we live. Now we know the inner man has been raised from the dead. The inner man is alive. The inner man can't sin. That's what 1 John says, right? The inner man is alive and loves only the Lord, but we, we live, that inner man lives in a body that loves sin. It's, it's corrupted. It's dishonorable. It's weak. And it's natural. So what can, you, what can you expect to find? It's going to break down. It loves sin. It's going to do things that are dishonoring, dishonorable. And you ought not put your trust in it because it's weak. It's liable to fall. And not only that, it feels very natural to do it. Think about it. You see, this is the reason that we have hope in Christ. We long for that when we will be, the Bible says, clothed upon which is with our house, which is from heaven, a new body. Can you imagine a body such that when you wake up in the morning, I, I, you won't, probably won't have to sleep, right? But just imagine for me, when you wake up in the morning, there's no tendency to just sleep in and not get up and seek the Lord. Or when someone says something provocative to you, there's no desire to respond. There's no pull towards sin at all. It's nothing. But rather than a pull towards sin and an inclination towards sin, which is natural now, there's this pull toward the Lord, toward righteousness, toward godliness. Again, every Christian who has had an experience with God, that what I mean by that is who is is born again, knows God, and has lived even a little bit of time in this world as a child of God, understands that wicked pull that this flesh has on us. And it, it is a magnet toward, toward sin all the time. But it will not be that way forever. Two things especially stand out in this chapter about this flesh. Corruption and death. Now look down at verse number 50, verse number 50, uh, 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Of course, that reminds us of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We shall not all sleep reminds us that some will be alive. Some will not be dead. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. I was also talking to Brother Mason before the Sunday school about the trump, the trumpet. The, actually, just to make a, a key distinction, does anybody know the difference between a trumpet and a trump? There is a difference. A trumpet is the instrument. Well, I do this, but actually, biblically, it'd be more like this, you know, because it would be like a ram's horn type thing. But a trumpet is the instrument. A trump is the sound. So a trumpet makes a trump. But here's the thing. Scripturally, you know, we, uh, Brother Mason was talking to someone who, who, uh, who got, who got who, how do I say it? Who made a, a large argument over the last trump, the last trumpet sound. And they, they, they said they didn't believe in the rapture because of all that. But here's what you have to understand about the sound of the trump, is that the sound of the trump, scripturally, is just a sound of assembly. And that, that happens a number of times in prophetic scripture where a trumpet sounds and people assemble. 
trumpet sounds and people assemble. That is the Old Testament use of it. Remember, there was those silver trumpets that the priest would blow and different kinds of blow, uh, uh, blows and blasts would, would cause people to assemble for war or assemble for different purposes. That's the purpose of the trump. So we ought not get sidetracked with that idea, that problem. But notice what it says. And the dead, verse 52, shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. You see that? Death is finally destroyed. And that happens, death is destroyed when death no longer has power over us. That is your future and that's my future. So two keys here. When we're raised from the dead, when the Lord returns at the resurrection, there is no more corruption, which is a reference to sin and degradation in the flesh, and there's no more death. And then I love verse 55. Verse 55 through 57. Listen to this. Do you remember when we were reading Romans chapter 7 last week? Romans chapter, let me read it to you just as a reminder, because I want, I want you to pick up on this. Romans 7.23 says this, But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Talking about the body. Verse 24, here's the key. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? If you look at that, oh, wretched man that I am, there's an exclamation point. It's an emotional outburst. In other words, this, this information that we're studying in Sunday school is not, is not supposed to be just facts. You see, it was not just facts to Paul. It was something he felt, felt very real in himself. In other words, the things that we're describing are things that we should feel and it should provoke an emotional response in us. It did in Paul. When he was talking about that sinful flesh in which he lived, he said, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? In other words, you see the hope, right? He saw his sin, that war, that he was tired of, and his response was, number one, I'm just wicked and hopelessly just sold into sin in the flesh. And then he turns to that and he says, but I, I have hope that Jesus is going to deliver me from the body of this death. That's, the, that's at the resurrection, right? In the same way, 1 Corinthians 15 says, there's an emotional outburst. He says this, O oh, death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be unto God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at this. Death does not have power over us any longer. 
hear me now, we should not fear it. That's easier said than done, I understand. There's a lot of mystery surrounding that, even in my own mind, right? Death, though, its, its sting, its pain has been removed. So no Christian should live in the fear of death. Here's the, here's the reason. Because the fear of death is a tool that the Scripture says Satan uses to keep people bound and nice, obedient little children to him, constantly being fear, fearful of death. Listen, people in this world are fearful of death. Someone I heard describe death as to a person that does not know God. It's, you could compare it to a man in an airplane at 10,000 feet at night in the pitch dark. The door opens and the man is required because death is not a choice that we choose. It's something that is required. There is no discharge in that war, right? That's what Ecclesiastes says. And it's, that door opens and you're required to jump. You don't have a parachute and you don't know what's out there. That's basically, that's a good, I think, a good description of death to people that do not know God. But it should not be the description to the Christian. Because the Lord Jesus, His resurrection is our resurrection. Right? The second thing I want you to see from this is this. The hope of the Christian should be a source of joy and expectation. And it should always give us a reason to press forward and be encouraged. Now hear me. A Christian might have many troubles in this life, whether it be, whether it be troubles as far as financial troubles or emotional troubles or personal troubles or relational troubles. There might be many troubles to the Christian. But listen, a Christian never has a reason for despair. And by that, I mean hopelessness. There's never a, listen, there is never a period to a Christian's life. There's never a point in a believer's life when they get to the point where there is, there's no good thing in the future. Listen to me now. There is never a point in a believer's life when there is no good thing ahead of them. And see, that's despair. Despair says, this is it. This is the way it's always going to be. It's never going to get any better. I'm stuck here. There's no hope. There's no way out. That is never true for a Christian. There is no such thing as despair. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians? He said, I think it's cast down, but not in despair. In other words, yes, the effects of this world and, and sin and, and, and trouble in this life do cast us down. We get discouraged, but we never get in despair. Why? Because we know that at its worst, at its worst, there's always a, there's a hope. And the hope is not just, well, it's going to get a little bit better. No, the hope is all of this is going to be removed. There is no use. This is the end. That's not true. 
There is a use. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, what does it say? Let's read that together. Let's read that together before Lester buzzes me out. I know that's what he's going to (laughs) do. Let's read it together. Ready, set, go. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You know that no matter what happens, there is no cause for despair. When a Christian is cast down, he should look to God. There is a day of resurrection when the corruption that we deal with will be eradicated. That sinful tendency that we have in this flesh will be eradicated. The trouble in this life will be eradicated. I would say that our, and even death itself, I would say that we, it'll be eradicated. So I would say that we have a pretty, um, I would say we have a pretty bright future and a pretty good reason to be encouraged, right? Rather than despair, to be uplifted, to rejoice. And this all goes, listen, this all goes back to the, this is one of the many effects of the coming of Christ. Let's pray.